Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, Ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my, it's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others, here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I am your host, Patricia Baker, and I am here on this snowy evening in the Berkshires, and it is January 25th already, and I'm here, of course, with my co-host, PK. PK, how you doing tonight? Absolutely fabulous. You've got the snow, and I've got a little sunshine today. I'll take it. Yeah. It's yes, been, that's great. And, you know, I no wanted flurries. to. That's unbelievable Not, to me. No flurries yeah. in Tucson. In Tucson. Right, but yeah, they're like little pin dots coming down. I said, oh my God. But it was <laughs> nice to see momentarily, and it was gone, and I was grateful because I remember why I came that's to Tucson. That's the best part. <laughs> yeah, when it's gone, it's like, Definitely. oh, it's beautiful. Goodbye. <laughs> No I know we've got a lot it even better. Right. That's right. I mean, we've got ice. I cannot even leave my house because the driveway is solid ice. So, oh, I'm praying that it will get up well, above freezing and the your, sun will come out. Well, you could just stand in your driveway, sit in your car and let it slide down like a snow yeah. like a snow. Yeah. Um, Except there's that part where it can go <laughs> off the edge. And over the cliff, that oh, part, that's, nah, no, no. I think I'll wait. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the reason I'm I also <laughs> mentioning the, the date to everybody is, as you know, we're coming to the end of the month, and property owners, this is your last warning. Jesus, right. This is the time that's you've so got true. to get your abatement in. If you have found any errors or you have any concerns about your assessment of your property, you have only, at least in Massachusetts and most other states, until the end of January to file an abatement. Mm-hmm. Now, I suggest if you have any questions about your assessment, you file the abatement and then get a hold of Patricia Quintilian's book, Are You Getting Screwed on Your Property Taxes? How to Find Out and How to Fix It. It's a step-by-step, and Attorney Quintilian gives you great information so that you know how to file these abatements, and what to look for. I mean, I had an email from someone just the other day who said, I'm so glad that I listened to you and I got my property record card because I looked at it. And right there in front of me was a screened-in porch on my house that I was being taxed on. And you know what? (laughs) I don't have a screened-in porch. So, surprise, surprise, this is why you need to look at your card Make sure it's accurate, and if it mm-hmm. isn't, you need to talk to the assessors, see if you can work with them at the local level, and get things made proper on your card. Now, you may also contest your assessment because a lot of assessments have gone way up, like everything else. So you have to make sure that that's accurate as well. So I want to encourage everybody, get your property record card, get the book. You can also go online and find out more information about how to do this, and you can also ask other people for help, like me, who has been down this road before, and I know how to do this stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm sure you will not like paying taxes you really don't owe, and this is the only way with your property that you'll be able to get it straightened out, and there are very strict deadlines, so you don't want to miss this one, because if you miss this one, then you're done for the whole year, and you can't go back and try to get the money that you were owed. It's like a one-time deal every year. So that's my advice. And now I want to hear your advice, PK. What do you got? Oh, and before you even say anything, I just have to say this. Our Mm -hmm. guest from last week who did not show up, Bishop Long, did call me 
Mm-hmm. And he said he was very sorry. Um, he was called out to give last rites in a rural area of Kentucky, and he had no cell service and no way to contact us and let us know that he was being held up um, or that he could even talk to us on the phone and do the interview where he was. He couldn't. So we'll uh, see about a later time that we may be able to get him back. But he apologized to everybody because I know you were all looking forward to hearing from him as we were. But our guest tonight is here. He was right on time and he's ready to go. And he's one of our favorite people because he is great. He's an expert. He's an author. You've heard from him before. So we'll bring him on in just a couple minutes. So, PK, tell us what's happening. What's your advice for all of us coming up into February almost? Well, I'm just going to do a tail end for this month because the Chinese New Year, we were talking about some going on the Chinese astrology. So this is the year of the rabbit right now. So it's going to bring hope and prosperity, which is good since we are in a universal seven, which deals with our finances and putting things together. This month is an eight. So it's all about money. So I thought this would be a good place to go because it starts with the yes. new year. It's going to kick off. It was. It's the second moon, the winter solstice, which was Sunday, January 22nd. That's when it started. And in the Chinese astrology, there are 12 astrological signs, but there are also five zodiac elements. So the, it's the year of water. And water is oh. very much a, a strong element. So the rabbit deals with creativity, appreciation for the arts. So you're going to find yourself being pulled towards exploration. Say maybe go to a museum, some music festivals, or some art type shows. By all means, if you feel it, go. It's important that you do. Because 2023, the zodiac element being water, signifies travel and movement. So get out and about and enjoy what's out there for us. The Chinese zodiac signs that will have a great year are those that are compatible with the rabbit. Those are daily the sheep, the dog, or the pig. These signs will see a wealth of opportunities, careers, relationships, all kinds of creativity. The pig and the rabbit are perfect matches. Dragons, snakes, roosters, and rats, they're going to clash with the rabbit this year. Uh-oh. So okay. we've got a chance of figuring out new things and new ways of finding out who we are with another element to show us more information about who we are, what goes on around us. So I thought Chinese astrology is a good place to take a peek and see how it affects what our personal stuff is that we consider our usual uh, astrological looks. So yeah, I love me, the I've got to throw in the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Everything goes back to the numbers. But uh, <laughs> so th- this is going to be a very interesting time. And we're just about going into a nine month. So come February, we're wrapping up a lot of things. So get yourselves prepared, people. Make a list of things that you want to get rid of. Let us know what they are so we can take a look at how we can help you find a better answer. That's my tidbit for tonight. Well, that is excellent. Thank you so much. That is great. So... Okay, last time we had Don on the show, we had so much fun. We talked about his book, which was brand new at the time, about vampires, energy vampires. That was an excellent, I love that book. It's one of my favorite books, Mm -hmm. and I know you loved it too. And we just had a great time exploring that whole subject. Now, Don has a new book. And this this is great timing, too, because it's very much tied up with knowing who you are. This is your guide to becoming a modern magus. Now, Don joined the Temple of Set in 1989, where he served as high priest for six years and is recognized as, and I'm not going to say this correctly, I'm just going to say it, Ipsissimus. He is the author of several books on left-hand path practice and philosophy, including the one I just mentioned, Energy Magic of the Vampire. He lives in Austin, Texas. Now, I was reading over his book reviews, and I'll tell you what, people love this book. Now, here's one of them. I just got to read it to you because it's so great. (laughs) This is not a book. It is The Cauldron of the Magus Don Webb into which he has poured a wealth of his 
experience, knowledge, and the practice of the magical arts. Dipping into it will more than stir your imagination. It will slake your thirst to know more. And that was written by Judith Page, Sation artist and author of My Inner Guide to Egypt. I just love that. It's such a beautiful way to talk about this great book. So, Don, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here. Well, as always, I'm glad to be here. It was a really great time when I was here before. So I really like your show and I like your guests. So I was I was thrilled when you guys sent me a note saying you'd have me again. Well, thank you. And I know you, you've had... You have been through COVID, as so many people, and and you have recovered enough to join us tonight. And we're so grateful that you have enough energy, so after all that, to to be with us tonight and talk about this book, the Modern Omega. So, t- tell us how you came up with this idea. Why did you think this was a book you should write right now? Well, it uh, it only took me 27 years to write the book. Uh, <laughs> And I'll tell you what happened. Um, uh, oh, my goodness. 27 years ago, I wrote a book called Uncle Set Knox's Essential Guide to the Left-Hand Path. And one of the things I said in the, you know, the paragraphs of that book is I said, there are no good general books on magical initiation. You know, until I write Uncle Set Knox's Magical Boot Camp, you guys are just going to have to be on your own. And I had no intention of of ever writing this. Well, like the first month after my book was out there, someone said, hey, when are you going to write your boot camp book? And I was like, I I don't even know. um, I don't even know how to do that. Well, a few years ago when uh, we all spent a year inside, as I'm sure you remember, uh, I, I, I could really think about what did I need to learn in order to practice magic. And I wanted to write a book that was, for the, the general population, not for the sort of darker left-hand path side of things, but just for, for anyone that practices. And, of course, I know hundreds of practitioners in different systems, and so I just started saying, you know, hey, what do you know, what works, what doesn't work, and then I created the book. Of course, I did all the exercises to see, you know, if they were in the right order, and then I cast this book into the world. Mm. Well, it's it's really a fascinating book, but it is a guide, which is even better because you actually have something to work with through the whole year to do your practices, set up your rights, do everything. And you even have something on consecrating candles and, you know, some of the basics. So it's it's really, really helpful. Now, here's a question that we get a lot. What can people expect from doing this type of practice? How does it how does it change your life? How does it change your path? Or what is, how does it enhance you? What does it do for you? Well, one of the things that's true about magic, and this is not, um, not generally what's said in the commercial world of selling occult books, but it's true. Magic destabilizes. Magic will change your relationship to the universe. Now, if you're trying to find out, as you said earlier in this program, who you are, it's an excellent tool because you can actually say, all right, how am I different than the experiences I've had all of my life? And you can begin to discover what you like, what you don't like, what your own feelings are. And then throughout this book, I went out of my way not to give my opinion on a lot of things, but I gave people uh, 12 sets of questions that they could answer, you know, they could answer after they've done the work and come up with their own ethics and belief and practice because I don't want to hand people myself. I don't want to, you know, just Xerox Don Webb. It's kind of an awful thought, but I like the idea <laughs> of Xeroxing critical thinking. Right. Interesting. Also, I think with the, the wide variety of techniques I talk about, because I put aside basically here's a, here's a year's guide. Uh, there'll be something new for almost everybody, something they've never tried before, and mm-hmm. some sense of how these things might fit together. So I assume that you start with a working brain, and you're going to go out and start buying tools. Now, a lot of people, of course, already have these things. But I thought, what would I start with if I were creating this book for 
the 23-year-old me as opposed to the 62-year-old me. So, Makes a big again, difference. what I like about... Yeah, and what I like about your book is, like you said, there's something for everybody. There's, it says it's a manual for magicians of all schools. So that's very inclusive. It's a very nice approach for everybody who's involved in this mm-hmm. and who wants to become involved in this. And it's from looking at the book, again, it's, it doesn't seem to be that hard to do, right? There's nothing here that's too complicated. I mean, you're using things that you've used probably before just in your daily life. Like candles and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems, and I have a section in the book where I talk about what I call it, dangers of the occult world, is a lot of people early in their practice spend way too much money on tools because, you know, they're pretty or they think the, the tool is what does it. What does it is your own psyche. The tools are really good props. Um, So if you're doing something using a dagger, it doesn't have to be a bejeweled, uh, one-of-a-kind dagger. It has to be something that you personally can identify with during magical work. Yeah, and I've been told that it could be basically just about anything. As long as you have a connection with it, a feeling for it, that it means something to you. Is that true? That is true, you know, because we, we spend our entire day in a variety of different mental states from sometimes really deep trance we don't notice to being distracted by the world. And we interact and invest our energies and thoughts in a lot of things. Now, every human, because regardless of what you think you believe, every human actually believes in magic because there will be either that one item that makes them feel lucky or that teacup that belonged to grandmother, and every time you see it, you have certain feelings arising in your heart. We enchant Mm -hmm. things all the time. We just seldom know or think about what does that mean because we did that. Well, yeah, so then that's, that's a really good way to describe our connection with certain objects and how they evoke mm-hmm. feelings within us. It's, it's true. I know, Pat, uh, Patricia, you were very close to your mom, so I know there's certain things you've mentioned that really make you feel close to her and Most have definitely. very good, lo- warm, loving feelings. So that's very powerful. Well, you know, it's just... Are those gold I, earrings I, I, one of them? <laughs> Well, the gold earrings were one, and the other thing was a teacup that my grandmother brought from England when she came to the United States. She came with six. One survived, the cup and the saucer, and I still have those. And wow. my grandmother, oh my God, it, every time I look at it, it's such a warm feeling because it meant so much to her that she would pack it and bring it on a ship with her. So. Little yeah, things that's mean incredible. a lot. We just don't realize how important they can be. Yeah, and how we can use them in our practice. So you're right. We don't have to go Definitely. out and buy like expensive stuff. Um, no. We can use the things sometimes that are right here with us already. Well, that's a special part about it because it has the consistency of her homeland, things that she believed in, to carry enough to bring it with her and to cherish it all those years and not let it get broken by the six children she had or the great grandkids that I have. It's still with us to give us that special <laughs> yeah, <really>. something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank God. One is one's still with us today. It made it. Um, and John, what about the elements? Now, you you talk in your book about fire and water and everything else. Like, what? Explain, if you could, to the novice in our audience, what's the significance of working with the elements that way? Well, in, in Western magic, um, for a long, a really long time, I mean, it goes back to a Greek thinker named called Implocates, so kind of a guy about the same time as Plato, they divided the material world into four elements, which they said were earth, air, water, and fire. Now, of course, this is not a book about chemistry. You know, if I was going to divide it, book about chemistry, I would mention the 92 naturally occurring elements and the ones we've synthesized since then. But I'm talking about the psyche. How does 
the psyche work. And each of the elements has corresponding things in our psyche. Let's take fire. We all recognize the fiery parts of ourselves. Sometimes we really enjoy them, like if it's happening during great sex. Sometimes we don't enjoy it if we're really, really angry or if we see that fire in someone else. But we actually understand parts of our psyche really well, uh, just by, you know, even just observing fire. You know, if you want to see what's really going on in your brain one night, turn off all the lights, light a candle, and just keep track of your thoughts for about 10 minutes because fire works really, really well to dig things out. Earth, the physical world, that has a lot of meaning too, whether it's earth in the form of wealth. Here's my gold. Here's my car. Here's these things I can hold on to. Or it can be earth in terms of where you grow things. How do you bring forth nurturing things? Uh, Waters, of course. The best symbol for humans' emotions because water changes and it's always in motion. And, of course, water even leaks out of our eyes or particularly happy or sad. We can understand water. And then, of course, air, finally, this medium through which we send and receive messages. And air affects us in all kinds of ways. For example, as you both know, uh, the greatest key to memory for a human being is smell. Right? You mm. can catch a smell of someone you haven't seen in years, and the brain will immediately produce all the feelings associated with that. So we're already wired to have connections to those things. And I start the book with those things because they're more familiar if you're dealing in the Western European tradition. Um, you know, if you were brought up differently, like, for example, in China, the, there's the five elements and there's a different set of meaning for them. Or there will be different elements um, for other cultural milieus. But I was mainly writing to people that are probably from the Western tradition. So I started with something that's more known to them, more familiar. And then as the book progresses, I get into things further away from that tradition. Right. Yeah, no, that would make sense the way you did that, too. And it's it's so easy to follow. So, like I said, any novice can pick up this book and start working with it and really develop some skills that are essential (coughs) and powerful. Definitely. And in this magical world of ours. You know, I've got a question about working with deities also because again we, as I told you we were still waiting for the book but do you talk about that in the book in your well, book I talk, I talk about that a lot in fact I, I organize um, the 12 chapters that are the, the actual manual after after a deity each month who I pick that deity because of what he or she represents and also I mean I throughout the book I say, here's a lot of different threads you can follow. Like, let's say you're reading uh, one of the chapters on Egyptian magic, and you notice that it's named after Horus or Anubis or the great Isis. Well, there's tons of things you can follow about that. And I also try to help people have access to better sources. You know, I mean, after all, if I'm looking around at my house library now with its I would guess about 3,000 volumes, I bound to have come across some things that are pretty good over the years. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 3,000 books. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, well, here's a question, and I, I, this is a little off topic in some ways, and I'm involved in a group, and we contact certain entities every week. And at one point, this is a, probably last year when we were working together, some of the old, I'm going to call them old gods, showed up. Very unusual, very interesting. I hadn't had any experience with them before. Have you had experience with the old gods? And I'm talking about like Mercury in a, in a physical form. Have you ever heard of that or worked with that? Oh, sure, of course. Any Any ceremonial magician should be able to call up, even 
even visibly, if you're doing the work really in great depth, any of these archetypical forms. And Mercury in particular, whom I probably know better under his Greek name of Hermes, um, Mm. is, you know, the patron of the magical arts, period. That's, you know, basically the realm that he's in charge of. Um, And human beings have been using these archetypes for, for thousands of years to the extent, of course, that they're not passive. You know, the gods have their own opinions and own agendas. Uh, yeah, they do. Be surprising because, you know, a lot of magicians think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to call up this guy and then he's going to do my, do my work for me. Well, no, I called her up and, you know, she has her own agenda. Let's take the, the great mother, the absolute Egyptian mother deity is the deity that we call Isis um, mm-hmm. because we, you know, the Egyptians themselves would have called her Aset, but we call her Isis for a lot of historical reasons. You're not going to work with Isis if you're doing anything that's not incredibly pro-motherhood. You know, she right. is the protector of children, mm-hmm. and that's why... She was popular a long ways away from Egypt. I mean, there were temples to Isis in in London uh, because they said this Egyptian deity she has the she has the mother vibe. Mm-hmm. Or you know, if you with somebody like Horus, you know, a god of leadership. The, the Pharaoh was always Horus, and so he's a good archetype to know if you're interested in matters of rulership and and making informed decisions as a ruler. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, some of these entities I didn't really recognize. I mean, I'm not as learned as you by any means on all of these deities and their full form, you know, and what they actually do. But it was surprising and absolutely true that they have their own agenda, their own, I don't want to call it a personality, but it's it's something that's similar to that. So you're right. I don't see any magician leading any of these guys or gals around by their nose and saying, do what I ask. I just don't see it. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe it can happen, but I don't see it. They're awfully powerful. I mean, when Mercury showed up, he was a power figure. I mean, he was physically powerful and mentally powerful, in every way powerful. So, yeah, I agree with what you have to say about that. Not like uh, ordering them around. So, what do you <laughs> hope for? When, yeah, what do you hope for when you call upon uh, these deities in your magical work? You're working with them as a partner, or how would you describe it? Well, you know, the relationship that everyone finds with the gods is a very personal relationship. But if you want to invoke a god or a goddess, you should consider all the different ways you have relationship with someone. I mean, one relationship could be as slave to master, like, you know, the gods in charge. Or the relationship mm-hmm. could be as friends or equals or relations or even, you know, maybe you're in a position of particular power. You can order this person. But then to find any of those things, you've got to look inside yourself and say, what's my relationship with this idea? And that means not just mentally like, oh, I'm going to think about that for about 10 minutes. It means you probably don't know. And it's going to really radically surprise you in some ways. Magic should never be about confirming what you know. It should be about discovering the wonder of how much you don't know. Ah, wow. That's great. Well said. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it was surprising to me when I saw, uh, well, Mercury and then others. It, it was so different than what I had ever imagined. So, of course, then when you're sitting there with something like that, then what do you do next? And you said, well, you can go inside and ask what your relationship is with them. And it's, uh, I'll tell you, it really adjusted, <laughs> use that word, adjusted <laughs> my perception of Mercury and his friends that that came to visit. So it is, it's a, an expansion in a lot of ways, working with this energy. 
Well, one, one hopes is you, you, if you approach things magically, that it's always going to be something bigger than you. If it's something smaller than you, you're wasting your time. But okay. eventually you learn the great secret, and the great secret is you are so much bigger than you think you are. Because mm. everything that Mercury showed you when he appeared, you had the capacity in yourself to understand and to perceive even if you've never had that perception your entire life. So wow. there's always a moment where uh, there, there's an old, an old Hindu saying, uh, well, I shouldn't say Hindu, that's actually a colonial term. There's an old saying among Shaivites, which is to worship Shiva, you must first become Shiva. And almost most of the methodologies, particularly in, in Shaivite Tantra, which I've uh, kind of hung around in for a few decades, uh, are about becoming Shiva so that you can actually worship and understand him. And that's a tough thing because that doesn't mean that you're that same entity the moment the ritual is over. You know, you're the same guy that's having to pay taxes and get your car started and all these things, but yeah. you're also a divine entity. And spend most of your time forgetting that. That's for sure. Yep. That's for that's sure. And, and I think that's why. It's, yeah, and it's so surprising when you when I when I see things like that and when I interact with things like that, beings like that. But you're right. You know, we do forget that we really put ourselves on a low level a lot of time. So these other entities seem above us and they're really not are they well they, they are in the one level because the fact that you and i and, and all the incarnate beings that are listening to tonight's program are very much in the world of you know four dimensions and five senses and we perceive mm-hmm. time in a certain way and we perceive you know physical things in a certain fashion um, so dealing with magical power is to make you think about what am I going to be when I am no longer incarnate? Right. What, what are you going to be like when you don't have your body? And, of course, the next thing that you should learn is not to hate the body, to, oh, the body is a limitation, but to say, wow, this is the gateway to everything. You know, my, the last tool that I have people consecrate through my year's worth of practice, you know, isn't a candle or a cup or a bell. It's the body because your body is ultimately the best magical tool you have. But it just takes a while to get up to where you're like, I'm going to really let that happen. I'm going to more deeply incarnate rather than say I'm going to draw away from those things. So, you know, for you, I mean, you're, you were a high priest for so many years, and, I mean, you've been doing daily practice for even longer. Can you share with us any experiences that you've had in magical practice that, that expanded your, your thinking, your consciousness, or really surprised you in some way? Well, I, I can, and, and, in fact, I talk about this particular incident in my book, um, generally, as a ceremonial magician, I think of myself as going out to meet magic. I'm going to do something and cause magic to be in my life. But some years ago, uh, I went to my hometown of Amarillo, and I had been on vacation. And my mother, who, when she was alive, was a, was a terrible liar about her health did not tell me that she was having <laughs> some serious health issues. Oh, uh, no. She just said she was having minor surgical work. And when I, I arrived get off the plane, I go and discover this is not in any way minor. And she and I talked and talked about why it's hard to talk about certain things, you know, in a parent-child relationship. And she began talking about the hospital we were in. And the hospital happened to be built on the farm that her dad used to share crop. Wow. And 
before the hospital was built, it was a place I used to go as a young magician and do this kind of shamanic work. And so as I, you know, the mom went to, went to sleep and I went out to the parking lot and kind of trying to wake up, um, I thought about the number of times this small area of land had radically interacted with my family. And so my entire ritual was basically I looked up at the night sky. I said, hey, if you have anything else you need to tell me, tell it to me now. I don't know if I'm going to be back here. And this was obviously a ritual without um, bells and candles and correct incense and, you know, interesting chants in other languages. And as I got, as I began to drop home that night, um, I had a moment of transmission. So I got home and I wrote out a five pages on a legal pad, no idea what to do with it. Um, other than I knew in many ways it affected my magical life all the way afterward because it was a true mystery. It's like, wow, uh, this is not something that happened to someone else. That's, that happened to me. There is in my handwriting. And there was that moment huh. when I realized that I was at the point where I could receive that sort of message. Now, if you get a message in divine language, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. You know, it's going to be hard to figure out what it means. Right, um, yeah. Because they have a greater economy of, uh, of linguistic forms than we do. Um, and, the, you know, the, the book was interesting. I called it the Book of the Hepset. It talked about uh, an Egyptian ritual, so it's how you need to look into this, and, and I did. And later took my practice and shared it with... Uh, the temple said as a whole saying, Hey, here's this. But the interesting thing was it wasn't just my creation. Once the spiritual voice had spoken, then I had to do the hard scholarly work, you know, finding dissertations on this topic and learning to, you know, read hieroglyphs at least a little bit and all the things. But every time I mind in the spot that the book pointed to, I found wonderful and transformative things. Wow. And, you what know, a, I was, incredible. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, this, is, this has happened to other people. I mean, obviously, Crowley had the same experience. In 1904, um, it's not an unusual thing for the gods to talk to you, but they're not going to talk very often. You know, they're not going to They're not going to say you. that again? Then, then I'll darn it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that that does pose a problem. And they're not going to speak your language, is what you're saying, too. They're going to speak in their own language. They're going to speak, I mean, obviously it was, you know, fortunately in uh, my, my little transmission was, was mainly in English, although there was one phrase I had to look up from um, classical Egyptian. But it's going to be in their own language. I'm going to give you an example, then I'm, I'm going to step away for a moment. I have a little errand to run here. I'll yes. be right back. But here's an example. Yep, sure. Okay. Here's how I explain divine language. I, I had a friend, uh, was, I was giving a talk about this once, and he said, look, I, I don't get it. What do you mean? How do you mean it's different? And so I finally said, look, you're an tra- air traffic controller. He says, yeah. I said, could you come up with about a good 15-minute explanation of what it, being an air traffic controller was? And he said, well, yeah, I have to do that when I train people all the time. I said, okay, so you got that, that explanation in your brain? All right, now imagine you're giving that explanation to a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. Oh, my and goodness, I, that, what a challenge. That's, you know, between, you know, yeah. divine language and human language. I'm going to go run a little uh, medical errand. In yes, my, please. And I'll be uh, right back. It's, yes, Definitely. we will wait for you. Thank you, Don. Definitely. This is what an exciting way of thinking about life i know and all these other entities that are around us if we want them to be i guess they are anyways but Mm -hmm. most of the time we don't notice but yeah that thing that happened with with mercury was very powerful he's quite large in stature and took me by surprise Mm -hmm. for sure so, but, but Don is a scholar. I mean, he goes way beyond just the practice. I mean, he is, as you can tell from listening, the two times we've had him on the show, I mean, he just knows so much about the history 
the oh, background, the archaeology of definitely. it all, I guess I could say. Yeah, and well, and it makes it, it fascinating beyond belief, yeah. Most of us know so little about these particular things. And when he puts it out there, he puts it in front of us, it's like those aha moments keep coming faster. <laughs> it's amazing. I know. The information that he has and to just, offer us. And it just makes me want to learn more, you know, about about all of this. And again, everybody, the name of the book is Your Guide to Becoming a Modern Magus. I'm just going to read a little bit of another review. I mean, his books get the best reviews ever. Uh, Many instruction manuals for building a magical practice leave out a few inconvenient truths. Like becoming a better magician is hard work. Not everything will go your way, regardless of how well you follow the instructions. And most importantly, unless you work first and foremost to transform yourself, your ability to cause change in the world will be limited. Don Webb thinks you are ready to handle these truths and has given you an honest roadmap. To point the way, he has created an innovative guidebook that stresses that magic must work with the whole self. All of your hopes, experiences, fears, desires, even when that work may be hard or uncomfortable. It is the rare mm-hmm. book that is indispensable for both beginners and seasoned practitioners alike, regardless of their school or style. Don Webb is one of the very few authors on practical magic who can truly pull off this difficult task. Whatever your approach is, this book will help you make it better. What a great review. And that was by Toby oh, Chappelle. Yeah, this, I know I really I really, I really like that. Yeah, to, I I actually have have, you know, met met Toby who is himself a fairly uh, formidable magician. One of the the big mm. secrets that that he's referring to is if you want your magic to work, your life has to be enchantable. And a lot of people ah. never think about <laughs> How can I make my life enchanting? Let's, let's, let's take yeah. let's take the little simple thing, right? People always, I want yeah. to do a ritual for money. Okay, they do their money ritual, and then their boss calls them in next week and says, you're going to have a lot of overtime the next three months. And they think, wait a minute, that's, that's <laughs> not what I wanted to do. But then I say, yeah. how is the money, you know, is your life like financially enchantable? You know, do you, do you run your own business? Do you sell stuff? Do you have some ways that money can get to you? Because if you don't, if there's no channels there, the money isn't going to fall. You know, the the gangster is not going to drive by and, and toss out the uh, briefcase full of money at your feet or whatever. Or <laughs> that if you want my day. <laughs> right? If you want love, you have to be able to – be in a place you can go and find love, you know, and that's mm-hmm. that's not easy. Um, you know, I uh, you you will not do a, a ritual for a lover and have one come and knock at your door at midnight, you know, being ready. Or, as I can sadly say from experience, some years ago, that can happen, and you don't want that person. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah, yeah. I, will, I, will not, I will not explain the rest oh. of that uh, that story. Um, <laughs> but a lot of people take magic with the idea of it's just an entertainment, it's not going to work. And oftentimes they scare the heck out of themselves the first time they do something that actually produces a manifestation. Yeah, I bet. Because it's true, a lot of people don't expect it to work, but they try it anyways, and then when it does. And like you said, it may not come in the form that you want, and there's a lot said about that. Um, but again, affirmations are a form of magic, I guess, when you're putting your intent out there. Oh, sure. I mean, that, that's actually one of the, you know, that's one of the ways really sort of start, right, is that basically I'm going to frame myself and my world and for the magician, there's usually not a sharp dividing point between those two things. Mm-hmm. Because your attitude and what you receive are very much linked together, particularly in your early part of your practice. Now, your book is geared for the self. I mean, you're doing this for yourself, for your own personal 
transformation, expansion, whatever your goals are. And I know with magic, there's a lot said about, there's a school of thought that says you should only do magic for yourself. And then other people say, um, well, you can do it for yourself or you can do it for someone else. What do you think about that? What's your thought? Well, I, I think that for human beings, you know, and, and the shape that human beings are now in, their evolution and so forth, magic has always been about your tribe, about your family. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're just doing things for yourself, then probably there's maybe some problem with just your life. Um, I want to be able to heal my family. I want to be able to help out my friends. And there's also the fact that magicians who do this kind of thing, you need to be able to do this and do it to a certain extent secretly because some of your friends are not going to be thrilled by the idea. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> they won't be. <laughs> right. So um, what advice do you have for people just starting out on the path? I mean, part of it is like what you're, is, I like what you're saying. You don't want to broadcast it everywhere. You want to really keep the energy close to you. You know, the, the, the big thing I would say if you're starting out, the thing that will actually help you the most and something that modern humans um, are not good at is keep your own private record. Write down what you do, write down your impressions, your dreams, whatever, so that you can find out, am I producing results in the world? Am I producing results in my own head? What works well? What doesn't work well? And when you decide to seek a teacher, um, then you can tell things to he, that, that man or that woman that, that can be your instructor. Because there's usually a place in your initiation where you need to go from what you personally know to getting someone outside your head that says, okay, let's think about that. Let's consider what the meaning of this is. The other thing I would tell someone who's beginning the practice, remember it's not just about what you do in terms of the magical art. It's about your life. If you have no place for beauty in your life, you're going to be a bad magician. Um, I, I used to, you know, for my, you know, my personal students, my first question was been, hey, when's the last time you went to a gallery or a museum? Ah. And if they look like that, and if they look startled by that idea, I'm like, you, you probably need to start finding beauty in your life. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, and how, how good are you at being uncomfortable? Because magic can sometimes put you in very uncomfortable, although ecstatic places. Mm-hmm. And again, with some simple magical practice, let's say you're somewhere you want to do uh, your magical practice, but you left all your tools some somewhere else, and you can still do that, just even without your tools, right? Just by yourself, sitting outside sure. or inside, doesn't matter. Yeah, tools are there to help direct your thoughts. And as you become better at directing your thoughts, you don't need tools as much. Um, We live in an age of hyper-distraction where people are distracted all the time. So sometimes it is really useful to say, all right, for my magical exercise, I am using a bell that starts it and a bell that ends it just so that focuses my own mind on what the practice is. Right, that makes sense. So it has yep. a, it's a attractive, and it begins and ends, so it's contained. Yeah, very, very interesting. Now, do you come mm-hmm. from a long line of magicians? Uh, well, I don't have like a like a family tradition of it, but like anyone who is alive today, I'm descended from magicians that must have done something right and weren't eaten by the tiger. <laughs> you have you have that feeling about you that i know you're in our time right now but you have this 
this ancient world feeling about you. So that's why I had to ask. It's like, how far does this go back in your lineage? Well, you know, in, in for almost everyone that begins practicing the magical art, you will discover that there are relatives that either things were said about them, you know, boy, you didn't want to get her mad or bad things would happen, or <laughs> there was something that was, was, was culturally appropriate. Um, and since we're, you know, we come from a long line of um, – I'm mainly white. I'm white and Chickasaw. I come from a long line of white people. There's not a lot of culturally appropriate magic, you know, um, other than, you know, big tendency for males in my family to be Freemasons for a few generations. But that's a pretty mm-hmm. uh, low dose of the Gnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's fascinating, and I think adding for anybody listening tonight who wants to give this a try, your book is is just perfect. And oh, what definitely. a wonderful way, yeah, to to bring magic into your life with this type of a guidebook. So it's, I think, I recommend this. I know you do too, PK. We both recommend this book highly to people, and you are an expert, Don. So everything you're suggesting is, in it is well tested. And people can feel comfortable trying these exercises and, and figuring out their own practice, keeping their own diary, as you suggested, mm-hmm. which is so important. You'll be able to yeah, write stuff down, what you're doing and your results. And and it's I know you have to tell everybody, look, you, you may not get the result you want or you may not get results at all until you get to know yourself better, right? That's the key. True enough. And in That's certain that. types of magic, uh work more quickly or more slowly um in the the second month of practice which i devote to earth i give a materialization um rituals one that was originally made by a british writer called austin osmond spare and i point out this takes about six months go do the work make a note when you did it and it's going to show up six months from now and then that's a really startling thing for people because they have long since forgotten what they did you yeah. know, then actually there it is. Whereas other things you can change really quickly. You know, dream work, uh, you can change what you dream tonight. I mean, that's not a, that's not that hard a thing to get to. Hard to control well, but it's not that hard to get to. Mm-hmm. Well, again, in this in this world where everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are really concerned about the rising prices of everything, They're concerned about money. And there are a lot of money rituals that can be done. Now, is that something that's a fast or a slow manifestation, or just does it depend on the person? Depends on, uh, first off, how can the money get to you? How, enchant- how financially enchantable is your life? And... Um, also, then, a lot of it just depends on your willingness to do practice. Here, mm-hmm. I'll tell you a, a money spell that will always work. Take four oh, $1 good. bills. We like that. Okay. On the back of the $1 bill, <laughs> write in any magical alphabet you know. You can look it up on the Internet. The runes in Theban, and Theban. Uh, any kind of cryptic form, uh, money comes to me. $4.00. Go out and find, in the next week, um, four people that you see begging for money on the side of the road and hand it one of them to each of them. And within a month, suddenly you will have uh, an unexpected source of magic, an unexpected source of money. But wow. is it my magic that did that? Because, you know, hey, I just, you know, I, I just won this, you know, a little drawing, or a friend of mine gave me something, or I found it. Um, Because magic comes from the unmanifest. That's a pretty easy one because it has some social tension. You're actually handing the stuff to to someone that's a beggar. Maybe you don't do that. It has magical tension. You're taking real useful dollar bills and getting rid of them. It has everything you need for a magical state. And then it will produce money that will not, in fact, frighten you because it's so big. You know, it's not going to cause your mm. great aunt Edna to, to suddenly pass away and leave you something in her will. Right. 
Wow, that is an easy one. Now, does it matter what kind of symbols you put on the dollar bill, or do you look for symbols that represent abundance? Uh, you look what you know. Find what's aesthetically pleasing for you. Um, I tend to use the runes of Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon work because my magical teacher uh, is a guy named Stephen Edward Flowers, who's written, I don't know, what, 40 books on rune magic? Uh, mm-hmm. and, I have, and I have a background in linguistics, so I like unusual alphabets. And Anglo-Saxon was written in a much nicer alphabet than uh, the Roman one we use right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it can be but anything mm-hmm. like that. Whatever, you can use hieroglyphics. Whatever. You can use. Yeah. You can use hieroglyphics. The well. uh, you know a, a lot of um, modern Wiccan groups uh, use an alphabet called Theban. It just needs to be something that's mysterious and appeals to you. Hmm. Okay. You know, aesthetics is a big part of magic. That's why we like those pretty sparkly toys. (laughs) Well, of course, yeah. Well, where where you are, PK, I know you do have people that are are begging, right? So you wouldn't have problem finding them, that's for sure. Not, I don't even have to go home. I'm up in the woods. Yeah, you're up in the woods. Well, we're 40 miles from the border, need I say more? Yeah, really. You've got lots to choose from there, so you could try it and report back on what happens. Hmm, very interesting exercise. But it's a, I, I love this concept, too, about being enchantable. That's so expansive. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the first step to being a magician is have an enchantable life. And then the second step is to be able that when it happens, to totally give yourself over to moments of wonder. Mm. You know, magic is not about practicality. Magic is about uh, goosebumps and catching your breath and saying, oh, my. (laughs) That is terrific. Oh, my goodness. I love it. (laughs) That is just great. I love it. Now, Don, do you have another book? Coming down the road, you have something percolating. Uh, I'm working on a book uh, about magical techniques right now. Uh, that's probably going to be called uh, "Magical Engineering for the 21st Century." Oh, that sounds <laughs> I like great! The title. Another another great title. Yes, fantastic! Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, we're going to have to have you back for that one. That's for sure. That sounds wonderful. Oh, I would love it. And now, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they find you? Uh, probably the easiest way is search for me on Facebook, and you'll find the guy that puts out thousands of pictures of cats. That's me. All right. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> and your I last like name, I'm going to tell everybody. That's right. It's spelled W-E-B-B, so there's two Bs in mm-hmm. your last yep. name. And again, everybody... The book is something you really should get, and it's called Your Guide to Becoming a Modern Magus. And Don, thank you so much. I know it's been uh, it's it's been a recovery for you in not feeling well, and yeah. I know you're also taking care of your wife who wasn't feeling well. So again, many thanks for taking the time to and energy to share with us tonight. And we hope you both feel better, continue to to be well, stay well. Definitely, definitely. Got to keep you well so you can finish that book. Yeah. I know. We've got to have you back on to talk about it. That's right. That's right. That's darn, darn right. <laughs> well, Don, thanks again, and, and please, please stay well. And everybody, we'll be back next week. We are going to have Kay come back. Kay Randall May. She was just on a few weeks ago, and she's coming back to – to talk to us about how to communicate with all kinds of entities as well as your family pet, etc. 
So that's a show not to be missed. Again, we'll be back next week. And until then, we will see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.